Well, good morning. This morning, I want to teach out of Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. The title of this message is Saul, also known as Paul, Healed and Commissioned. This is the continuation of a story of a man named Saul, who was perhaps named after the first king of Israel. The first century Saul, however, became a prominent Christian leader of the first ecclesia. Prior to his conversion, he sought and was granted authority from the Jewish religious leaders to arrest any disciples of Jesus that he could find in Damascus. He was a committed opponent to the first ecclesia. He was willing to travel a long distance, about 150 miles, which would have taken about a week, just to persecute those who were part of the early ecclesia, known as the way. But instead, he was intercepted by Jesus. Saul's encounter with Jesus was unexpected, unplanned, and uninvited. Saul was not interested in meeting Jesus or becoming a follower of Jesus. He was not a, a seeker. He was passionately opposed to Jesus and sought to incarcerate his followers, that is, the followers of Jesus. Instead, Saul met Jesus, and his life changed. This is what happens when anybody meets Jesus. Things change. His worldview, his work, his mission, and his walk all changed. In a moment of time, Saul transitioned from serving the spirit of Antichrist to serving Christ. Saul's salvific process began with a personal connection with Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus sovereignly, personally engaged Saul. Saul was totally mystified, did not know what was going on, and did not know this person who was talking to him, who happened to be Jesus. Those with, whom, those with him were mystified by the encounter between Saul and Jesus. They saw the flash of light and heard a sound, but didn't understand any of it. After the encounter, they led Saul to Damascus and took him to Judas's house on Straight Street. I mean, how ironic. Judas's house on Straight Street. During the encounter, Saul and Jesus talked. Saul asked Jesus to identify himself. Jesus said that he was the one that Saul was persecuting. Jesus clearly identified with his followers because Saul was persecuting the followers of Jesus. So for Jesus, his perspective was, if you persecute my followers, you persecute me. Three days after the personal encounter, Jesus sent a human agent, Ananias, to be the instrument for healing his physical sight and to facilitate his being filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that the encounter that Paul had with Jesus uh, did not include a gospel message. It did not include a human agent preaching or proclaiming that message. It was just Jesus intercepting Saul. When Ananias was then sent later, he was the human agent that was sent. He met, met Saul and he called him brother, which means that by the time that Ananias, the human agent, entered the scene, that Saul had already been regenerated. He had already been made part of the ecclesia. He had been adopted into the family of God. He had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That had already happened. However, he still needed to be healed. Saul needed physical healing, and he had not been baptized with the Spirit. Very interesting that Jesus did not do those two things. Instead, he sends a human agent to do them. Saul's experience illustrates that when Jesus intercepts us, our partnership with the spirit of Antichrist stops, 
and the process of growing and our ability to live in partnership with the Spirit of God begins. This is called sanctification. So let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 19. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord, the Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Saul is there. He's praying. And he had a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to the saint, to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. And we'll be talking about that next time. And it may have been he was there for a number of years. Well, let's take a, take a quick look at the text. Verses 10 through 12. At this point, the first ecclesia was presumably still nascent. And those in Damascus received the truth of Jesus as a result of the persecution and scattering of the Christians associated with Stephen's death. Ananias, who lived in Damascus about 150 miles from Jerusalem, was new to the way. Nevertheless, he was called a disciple. Now, that's very interesting. Today, most people that are new to Christianity are far from being disciples. If you call him a disciple, you're just being kind and gracious because a true disciple is a disciplined learner a follower of the ways of Christ and must know the commands of Christ. That's the mandate of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is to know the commands of Christ, which means to be obedient to them. Most today that call themselves disciples know almost nothing of the commands of Christ because of our biblical illiteracy, which is so high today. In the first century, people were very biblically literate, so they were very different in that sense. And so, so basically, Ananias in very short order, because of his high biblical literacy, was able to process what it meant that Jesus was both Lord and Christ, and that was transforming his life quickly, and that's because he was so biblically literate. That generally doesn't happen today. So today we have, con we have a lot of converts and very few disciples. Back then, as people became converts, they became disciples fairly quickly. When the Lord spoke to Ananias, he recognized his voice. Jesus told us that, <clears throat> that his sheep would recognize his voice, John 10, 27. But Saul did not recognize Jesus' voice, which tells us that he was not regenerate as he is on the road. That regeneration happened between the encounter with Jesus or at the encounter with Jesus 
and the time that he met Ananias. Because when he met Ananias, Ananias called him brother, which indicates he had already been accepted and been placed into the body of Christ. The Lord commissioned Ananias to go lay hands on Saul so that he would regain his physical sight. However, when Ananias encountered Saul, Ananias stated something different. He said that he was there not only to facilitate Paul's sight, but also to facilitate his being filled with a spirit. Now, this is just an amazing, amazing statement. It's like Ananias has added something, but we know since the spirit has superintended the writing of scripture that he didn't add anything. It's just that the record, any, any record in scripture will have what's needed in it to convey what God wants to convey. And apparently the Holy Spirit didn't want to convey this, the point about being filled with the Spirit in verse 12. Instead, he conveyed it in verse 17. Jesus intercepted and revealed himself to Saul without using any human agent, but Saul's physical healing and his spiritual empowerment were imparted through a human agent. This was at the sovereign pleasure of Jesus. This illustrates the sovereignty of God, perhaps in regeneration and then the divine synergism that happens in the partnership between mankind and God in sanctification. Now, please understand when I say partnership, I'm not saying it's a 50-50 deal. No, God is sovereignly controlled even over our sanctification, but sanctification does require a response from, from us. Regeneration happens to us in a state of being dead. So there's no, how can a dead person respond? The only thing that a dead person can do to respond is to come alive. And that's what happened to Saul. He came alive. But when you are entering the process of sanctification, the spirit of God is filling you. And now you're becoming obedient to the commands of Christ as that's beginning to happen, that we will respond to that. We have a responsibility to respond to what the Spirit's doing in us. We can't make that happen. The Spirit of God is making it happen, but we can quench it in some way, in some level, we can quench it. All right, going on. Ananias questions Jesus now, verses 13 through 16. Ananias had a vision. The Lord called to him, and he responded obediently. Here I am, Lord, which means that Ananias heard the voice of the Lord. Ananias was part of the, the flock of God, and my sheep hear my voice. So here's what, uh, what was said to Ananias. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. That was a good thing. Paul is there. He cannot see. He can, he's not eating anything. He's simply praying. In a vision, now Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So here again, there's no reference to the, being filled with the Spirit. Here, it'll show up in a later verse. Though Ananias didn't make Peter's error when, when Peter said, no, Lord. In fact, Peter said, no, Lord, twice to Jesus. You would think that Peter might learn his lesson. But Ananias was wise enough to not make that error. Instead, he just asked the question. And, and the Lord is so condescending, that is, so gracious to respond to our weakness and our many times lack of faith. Um, basically, Ananias' question is answered by the Lord. So the question is this. I have heard 
from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The divine attribute of condescension then was displayed by the Lord's great patience in how he responded. So the Lord said to him, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. When you read that last sentence there, you wonder, was this really a blessing for Saul to be intercepted by Jesus? And we know that it was, even though you can see that in the, in the flesh, in the natural, Saul was going to suffer much, and we believe that he even suffered to martyrdom in Rome. Saul was called to take the name of Jesus to the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ethnos. Many times we translate ethnos nations. Probably not a great translation. It's led us to think about the ethnos in terms of geography, and that's really not a great way to think about it. There is, there is a loose connection between ethnos and geography, but not a tight connection. In most cities today, particularly the United States, you have virtually every ethnic group in, in all the major cities from all over the world. So that's really, ethnos has to do with the ethnicity of people, the, basically their lineage, where they have come from, that ultimately is traced back to Noah and his sons. So the, he, Noah had three sons, so there's at least three major ethnic groups. And uh, there are a lot of subgroups that spin out from those. So what he's saying here is that he's going to be an emissary to the, the ethnos, to all these ethnic groups, and also to the Jews, who are the chosen people of God. And he specifically points out rulers, kings, the people that have the ultimate authority, the senior political leaders in the world. And his calling involves suffering, paskeo, which has to do with the suffering of Jesus. Many times when the last week of Jesus's life is called the paskeo, the suffering of Christ, because that was a week indeed of suffering, great suffering, persecution, wrongly arrested, beaten, stripped, and ultimately crucified. So the great persecutor of Jesus and his ecclesia was Saul. This person who was the persecutor became the one who would serve for persecution for the name of Jesus. That was his calling. Verses 17 through 19, Ananias now obeys, and Saul is healed and commissioned. Ananias fulfilled his assignment. He went to Judas's house on Straight Street to continue the salvific process in Saul. The fact that I and Ananias addressed him as brother Saul suggests that he was already regenerated and therefore part of the New Testament ecclesia. Uh, <clears throat> Ananias laid hands on him, restored his sight, and facilitated the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Clearly the Lord Jesus could have done this without a human agent, but didn't. That was the sovereign pleasure of God. The restoration of Saul's physical sight was perhaps symbolic that he would see reality from a new worldview. When he embarked on his journey to Damascus, his worldview was that of the spirit of Antichrist, the default worldview of mankind. When he was intercepted by Jesus, the experience blinded him physically, symbolizing the need to discard the worldview of the spirit of Antichrist so that he could receive the worldview of Christ. When Ananias laid hands on Saul and prayed for him, the healing was instant. 
something like scales fell off his eyes. And we have no information on what that really was. It's just that's how it was described by Luke. It appears that Jesus used the scales as a physical means to blind Saul. So it tells you how many times what, what God accomplishes, he does use physical means. These events represented Saul's entrance into the three-step salvific process of regeneration, sanctification, and glorification. The process is initiated and managed and culminated under the sovereign hand of God. Now let's talk for a moment about some theology. First, I want to talk about the personal nature of God and the condescension of God. Then I want to talk about human agency. And finally, I want to do an application. Who has the power of choice? The personal nature of God and condescension of God. Jesus' interception of Saul reflected the divine attributes of a personal God and a condescending God. God is personal in that he interacts with people individually and values people enough that, that he has a purpose for them. And Saul was specifically told he was called to suffer for Jesus. Now, 1 Peter 2 tells us we all have that very same calling. So that was not unique to Saul. It's God has chosen that in the battle, the cosmic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or between the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ, that cosmic battle, that there will be martyrdom, there will be suffering, that the seed of the woman would have some victories over the seed of excuse me, the seed of the serpent would have some victories over the seed of the woman. And that mean, that was symbolized in Genesis 3.15, the pro-evangelum that was symbolized by the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. But we know the ultimate end is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That is the fatal blow that will bring everything to culmination and we will then have a new creation. But God expressed his love for his creation and for the reality that we're in right now through his personal interaction with humans and his condescension to accommodate the communication limitations of fallen humans. Even mankind's fallen condition does not block God's willingness to relate to mankind. The idea of condescension is generally viewed as a pejorative term, but this is not the sense of the word when used of God's relationship to mankind. Theologically, the idea of divine condescension flows from the divine attribute of a, of a seity. A seity is the attribute that says God is not dependent upon his creation and or his creatures for anything. This is seen in Acts 17, 24 through 25. By his own will and by his own pur for his own purpose, he chooses to relate to mankind individually and purposefully. Though God's thoughts and ways are beyond full comprehension by finite mankind, see Isaiah 55, 8, God chooses to lower himself to relate to mankind through accommodation, relating to mankind in ways that mankind can comprehend. For example, God uses anthropomorphic language, speaking of himself in human terms as if he functions like a human, for example, walking or possessed human body parts like hands or feet or a face. But God is way beyond this. So this is just imagery. It's a way to condescend and reach man who is in a much lower and much more limited state than God. Now let me talk about human agency for just a moment. God does use humans to facilitate salvation in other humans. Does he really do that every time? 
Well, if he does, why does Jesus intercept Saul personally? And then afterwards, why does he use a human agent to heal him and facilitate his filling with the Holy Spirit? Certainly, Jesus is the primary cause of everything. And as the primary cause, he doesn't need secondary causes, but chooses to use secondary causes like human agents. It was, however, God's sovereign pleasure to condescend to use a human agent to affect Saul's healing and initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For Saul, the salvation process began when Jesus intercepted him. Prior to Ananias laying hands on him, the Holy Spirit regenerated him. This is inferred from Ananias' greeting to Saul when he first met him. He said, Brother Saul, which implies that Saul was already part of the New Testament ecclesia. Was Saul's experience of being personally intercepted without a human agent to be normative? Well, Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, uh, he commented on this in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paul said this, How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed in, and how can they believe without hearing about him, and how can they hear without a preacher? A preacher is clearly a human agent conveying a message that God has given him to convey about Jesus. So here it appears that Paul did not view his own experience of being intercepted personally by Jesus without a human agent to be normative. Rather, he, he sets out what he thinks the norm is, is that normally people meet Jesus through the agency of a human being proclaiming the message of the gospel. So finally, a word of application. Who has the power of choice? The battle in the cultures of the world today is the question of choice. It is a worldwide global battle. Who has the power of choice? Will the preponderance of choice go to the state or individuals? The Greek word translated authority in English is exousia, which can be translated power of choice. Choice is the right or freedom to make decisions such as healthcare decisions or education, economic decisions or public policy decisions, including social norm decisions. So those are choices that someone has to make. Some argue that the power of choice for these, these issues should be the purview of the state. Others say it's the purview of individuals. So how does one make this decision? How does a people group make this decision as to who has the power of choice? Well, one of the things we have to consider as we ponder this is we have to consider the whole question of free will, which is a big, big deal. Most people today tend to think that we have free will. Does mankind really have free will? Does he really have the power to choose whatever he wishes? Does he really have absolute free will? For example, can a person choose to go to Mars right now? Anyone? Hopefully you realize that, no, that can't happen. Can a person choose to not die? I don't think that could happen either. Can a person choose to live without food or air? Nope, that can't happen. Can a person choose to change their place of birth or date of birth or a biological parents? I don't think that can happen either. I think most would then agree that these are examples of limitations on human choice. So in the absolute sense, there is no free will. There may be limited choices that a person can make, such as what to eat for breakfast or what clothes to wear or what time to get up in the morning. 
But given a fallen world, how much freedom of choice does one really have? Well, the answer resides in the degree to which mankind is in bondage to sin. This is the question of total depravity. How totally, totally depraved is mankind? Well, theologically, total depravity means that mankind can never do enough good works to meet God's standard of righteousness. It does not mean that mankind can't do something that would align with God, but it, need, it means that my, mankind can never do enough to align with God. This intimates that mankind is so biased to sin in his mind, will, and emotions that no person can be good enough to meet God's standards of perfect holiness. So if this is true, mankind is not free to choose God. So whatever freedom of choice we might think we have, it does not include choosing God. The Apostle Paul stated this reality in the text, in the following text from Romans 3, verse 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So the idea of seeker-friendly is a misnomer. There's no such thing as seeker-friendly. No one really seeks God in and of himself. Now, you might say, but I know of people that have sought the Lord. What you've seen there is someone who has obviously been touched by God. You're probably seeing someone that's already been regenerated. And so when you're, once you've been regenerated, you're made alive, and now you can't help but now seek to know the Lord. So the only sense of free will from fallen mankind is the freedom to sin. There's no innate ability to choose Christ until Christ expresses his choice for you and empowers you with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. So this truth is illustrated in the Apostle Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was a zealous Pharisee. He was known as Saul at that time who was highly trained in scripture and Jewish traditions, but he did not know the Lord Jesus as Lord in Christ. Paul opposed Jesus and his followers. This is the default state of every human being, regardless of their biblical literacy and our theistic conviction. No one can, no one has the power to change this condition. We cannot change the reality of our fallen state and our inability to please God and satisfy his righteous standards in our, therefore, our inability to choose God. Therefore, the only way out of this bondage to sin is divine intervention, which is what happened to Paul. Paul began his journey to Damascus to incarcerate those who were followers of Jesus. He was an agent who opposed Christ, so he was allied and regulated by the spirit of Antichrist. But on the way, Jesus intercepted him. Paul was not seeking Jesus and did not choose Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus chose him. The power of choice in this encounter rested with Jesus alone, not with Paul. The encounter with Jesus was both physical and metaphorical. Physically, it really happened. And metaphorically, it represented a transformation to a new road, a new way of life or a new lifestyle. After the encounter, Paul was regulated by Scripture with the understanding that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. A new road of life is marked by a new destination. Before his encounter with Jesus, Paul was living for himself, but afterwards he lived for Jesus. This suggests that the key mark of one who has encountered Jesus is a new road and a new destination and a new motive. 
when anyone makes a profession of faith in Jesus, the validation will be a lifestyle changed, a transformation, alignment now with Jesus. This is a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. There's, this is something that no human chooses. Only God can affect this transformation. And it is Jesus who chooses us, not we who choose him. And Paul makes this point very clear in Galatians 4, 8 through 9. And he says this. In the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather, you have become known by God. In other words, you became known by God, and then you came to know God. The story of Paul's conversion to Christianity is an illustration that no fallen human has the power to choose Jesus. Furthermore, this implies that the power of choice for fallen humans is so impaired by sin that it limits our ability of humans to make wise choices. This understanding must be part of the public policy discussion as one seeks to answer the question, who has the power of choice and to what degree? Who has the power of choice in a society, the government or individuals? Until this discussion can be conducted in the context of Christian thinking, there will be no sound answer to the question. So may the Lord give us grace to think this through from a Christian worldview. In Jesus' name, amen.